Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. A frequent theme in this podcast these days is the electrification of everything and the changes that are required by electricity systems to basically power the electrification of everything. And we've talked about uh, changes that are coming to the Canadian electricity systems. Uh, we've talked about what's going on in the U.S. on a number of occasions. Uh, I'm going to talk today to Michael Young, who is the uh, director of the ICF Climate Center, about a report that he wrote about how uh, American climate legislation, clean energy legislation is going to affect how utilities respond to the electrification of everything. So welcome to the interview, Michael. Fantastic, Mark. And it's great to be here with you. Big fan of your work. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. Look, uh, yesterday we had Dr. Uh, sorry, Professor Professor Raja Shakaran from the University of Houston on. We were talking about electric vehicles and the um, you know sort of the Inflation Reduction Act and how you know our utilities responding. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about the utilities themselves and. Maybe what we could start with just to launch us at what is the ICF Climate Center and the ICF? I had a brief uh, peek at what uh, its history uh, on the web before we started this. It's, just, it's a very interesting organization. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Mark. Um, the um, ICF, interestingly, stands for uh, originally the Inner City Fund, and it was uh, launched by a bunch of World War II veterans and led by one of the Tuskegee Airmen, uh, with the, the all-black Air, uh, Air Force Squadron. Um, and it was designed originally to be sort of a venture investing uh, tool for inner city businesses um, in, in, after the Second World War. Um, I think they quickly found that capital was not the constraint. It was really, um, you know, uh, implementation expertise. And so they started consulting and helping uh, the businesses that they were funding. And pretty soon they realized that, you know what, we're really good at this consulting stuff. Uh, so uh, so um, ICF, the Inner City Fund, became just ICF, the consultancy. And today we've got over 8,000 people uh, working across like 80 offices around the world, uh, helping governments and businesses um, tackle the hardest challenges that they can't solve themselves. About a quarter of our people work pretty exclusively on climate-related activity. Um, I think we are arguably the largest uh, uh, climate consultancy and certainly one of the oldest. We've been doing climate work since there was climate work to do. Uh, we did some of the first sea level change analyses for the US EPA back in the day. Uh, we were in the room when the US uh, Department of Energy launched uh, what became Energy Star uh, uh, as a program. Um, and, uh, you know, we were uh, we did the math behind, you know, the Montreal Protocol analysis uh, that led to uh, the ozone depletion activities uh, or fighting the ozone depletion activities. So, uh, so we've been doing climate as long as anybody. And the climate center here at ICF is a relatively newer initiative. We've been uh, around for a little over a year. Um, really intended to be um, uh, what I sort of like to uh, think of as ICF is a raft guide uh, and we help our, you know, the people get through the rapids uh, who are in our raft, our clients. 
Um, but part of our responsibility is not just, uh, you know, to the people that uh, are our clients, uh, but um, we got to make sure that every raft gets through the rapids in pretty good shape. And so the Climate Center is public facing. Uh, we are not client driven uh, necessarily. And we produce general insight that is uh, free and available to the public. Now, I have to ask this question because I've been arguing for a long time as a journalist that the energy transition has deep roots. In some cases, it goes back to the 70s with the, the introduction of commercial solar panels. A lot of the technologies that we talk about today as, as mature and affecting the energy transition go back to the 80s, the 90s, which is why they're having their effect today is because they've been developing for, for decades. And my argument is that if you look at the S-curve of technology adoption, this, the 2020s, is the decade of disruption. This is when all many of these technologies are maturing. They're beginning becoming competitive in the marketplace. They're beginning to push out the old, the old technologies, which of course you're disrupting business models, they're disrupting markets, all of that. And would you agree that in the US that this disruption is is being recognized because for a long time that the public conversation around this, at least for somebody on this, you know, north of the border, uh looking looking in has been denial where you know we're, we're we're not crazy about acting on climate change we're sticking with oil and gas but it seems like the United States in a very short period of time has caught up and now the public conversation is very different and it's around clean energy disruption and being coming competitive with China and other regions is that a fair comment to make an interesting way of looking at it, Markham. I think tipping points are an important way to understand not just technology development, uh, as you uh, described the S-curve, uh, but also sort of policy maturation. Um, you know, uh, for a long time, it might have looked like the United States was, you know, uh, uh, not going to make it uh, in terms of getting to where we needed to be uh, for climate policy. Um, but, you know, these things happen by the narrowest of margins. Uh, but once you get, you know, that 51st vote uh, out of 100, um, uh, things can happen pretty quickly in the same way that technology, once you get into, you know, where this is cost competitive, uh, suddenly things ramp up very quickly. So I think the analogy holds true, whether it's technology or policy. Gotcha. Uh, ideas uh, basically follow the S-curve many times, uh, just like technologies do. Well, let's talk about some of the legislation that is going to be affecting clean energy and utilities. Of course, we have the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, which came in, in August and is absolutely grounded. Uh, uh, it, it's shifted the conversation in such a large way. And in, the, in Canada, we're just beginning to wrap our heads around that. Uh, next month, the federal government is going to bring in its budget, and it's promised that there will be programs in response to the to the IRA. Uh, you know, Canada has to have its own version of that so that we can play in this game with the Americans and of course as partners uh for the most part because the IRA is taking a, a North American, a friend shoring kind of approach to it. But that's 369 billion billion. But I've heard, I've read in other analyses, when you look at the different various other pieces of legislation, the amount available could be a trillion dollars. So what other what are some of the other pieces of legislation that are, you know, that have, have been passed and will be stimulating the adoption of clean energy and therefore affecting utilities? You know, Markham, everyone talks about the Inflation Reduction Act as uh, the climate bill or the U.S. climate bill. And, uh, and I think that that's a fair characterization. Uh, but what it leaves out or overlooks is um, the fact that 
it's not a standalone piece of legislation. It's actually uh, uh, one of three big pieces of, uh, of, of legislation that I think will you know, stand up in the reverse view of history as being right up there with, you know, the great society that Lyndon B. Johnson enacted. Um, uh, you know, th these are these are big deals. Um, the other two pieces that I'll mention are the bipartisan infrastructure law uh, or the, you know, uh, IIJA, uh, Infrastructure Investment uh, and Jobs Act, um, as well as the CHIPS Act. Um, and both of those are really um, uh, companion pieces of legislation. Uh, the bipartisan infrastructure law in particular um, sets forth uh, funding for infrastructure investment, um, because it's one thing to, you know, subsidize the, 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 uh, the, the, the you know, and, and incentivize really um, the deployment of, uh, you know, clean energy assets out there on the grid. But if the grid itself isn't uh, augmented in ways that uh, can be ready uh, to, to, to be plugged into these devices and assets, uh, then, you know, we're not going to get there. And so the bipartisan infrastructure law does a ton for grid modernization, uh, does a ton for um, you know just getting the grid ready uh, for for the, for the clean energy future, and um, and I think a lot of people you know kind of forget because it was passed you know uh, earlier in the year um, and or and, you know it's just kind of our attention span is short. Uh, we get excited about the last big thing, and so I, I really encourage folks to understand that you know these are connected, uh, connected by design. Right, and the Chips Act is about two hundred and eighty billion dollars, and the Infrastructure Act is about five hundred and fifty billion dollars. And even I can do that math. That's over a trillion dollars that will be uh, available to for uh, both on the demand side, because we're going to see EVs and heat pumps and other sources of electricity demand come on stream in a hurry. And then, of course, on the supply side, and particularly you mentioned, you know, the modernization of the power grid. Imagine even an economy as big as the U.S., a trillion dollars of public money in seven or eight years flooding into that market and, the, and then, of course, leveraging private capital uh, on top of that. So I don't know how many trillions that would be, but it seems to me that you put a lot of a trillions of capital into an economy, it's transformative. I would say it's not just the funding, Markham, that's transformative. You know, uh, the United States economy is measured in you know, the tens of trillions. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about uh, a catalyst, uh, an accelerant. Uh, but I think what's really transformative is the mechanism. Uh, we're not doing the, um, you know, uh, the penalty approach. We're not, uh, you know, waving sticks. Uh, we've really done this remarkable pivot towards carrots and incentives. And what that's really done that's powerful is align the politics. Uh, now there's something in it for everyone. And the folks who might have fought it before now see themselves benefiting and being part of the solution. Uh, most of these dollars are going to go into what we call red states, uh, you know, politically conservative states where, Quite frankly, the resources and the opportunities are most abundant. And so now if these places can see themselves as part of the solution, the jobs are getting created in places that are politically conservative and now are have a reason to be aligned with uh, you know, the march forward into a more climate compatible energy future. That's powerful. That's transformative. And I think that's really kind of uh, the takeaway that I would suggest is bigger than the dollars. Oh, that's interesting then, because I mean, a lot of the money is going to be flooding into places like Texas and Arizona. And, yep, and, yep, and these are red states. Yeah, and politics always follows money, right? <laughs> you know, not say? just politics follow the money, but I would say the money follows the opportunity. And where the money follows the opportunity, politics is awfully opportunistic as well. Okay, well, let's talk about demand briefly, because we do want to talk mostly about the supply side, about the utilities and and uh, the uh, and the improvements to infrastructure. 
But on the demand side, the I think the point that you made in your report is that this will be like a veritable, veritable flood of new demand as as uh, electrification of transportation. And it's not just cars and trucks. I mean, there's transit, so buses. Uh, I was just in Edmonton last week and uh, and did some uh, shot some video and did some interviews around uh, uh, hydrogen semi trucks. They're going to be running some pilot projects there and then some hydrogen buses. And in a cold climate, so think Minnesota, hydrogen buses are better than battery electric buses because they just operate better in the cold. Uh, and it, it everybody's gearing up for this. And it, you see it sort of, you know, in, in the U.S. So how significant is that? Give us a, just a, your sense of the magnitude of what's coming on the demand side as we electrify the various sectors of the economy. It's a great question, Markham. One of the, the interesting things about the policy mechanism that we've adopted with these carrots is that um, they're actually designed around uh, incentives per unit and aren't actually capped uh, in terms of the total amount available. Uh, so it's kind of a guessing game. Uh, how many heat pumps will get deployed? Um, it depends <clears throat> not just on the dollar incentive, but also on how quickly can we train up the contractors? How quickly can we build up the electrician workforce? Um, uh, you know, there are a lot of bottlenecks uh, and, and, and what I think of as opportunities along the way that will determine how many of these things end up in the field uh, uh, doing their job. So, uh, so I'm not going to get involved in the guessing game, uh, but I will say that, um, you know, it's going to be transformative. Uh, we are going to see um, uh, electrification of transportation, of, of, of residential buildings, of, of commercial and even industrial activity on a scale that was not going to be possible before the passage of these bills. Um, and, and that's where I think the rubber meets the road for utilities. Um, you know, hopefully uh, more utilities than not become active participants in this bold new future. Uh, but there will be utilities that will not be able to get their act together quickly enough or may end up, you know, resisting change, uh, seeing it as a challenge rather than as an opportunity. And so that's the reason we put together our report, which is, you know, we want the utilities to win. Uh, we want them to benefit from this change. Uh, but to do so, they're going to have to think differently than what, you know how they have in the past. Well, it seems to be. I mean, we we've seen since uh, oh, 2005, 2008, nine. You know, electricity demand being just pretty much flat, and in some cases uh, declining. And so, this is an industry. I know it's state, and I know it's conservative, and it you know, it, but it, it's not very often that a, a, an industry like this is presented with a, a considerable opportunity for growth. Because at the end of the day, these are often many of them are investor-led utilities, and they're there to make a buck. And here's an opportunity to increase electricity sales in a very significant way. And is the are the utilities is that the way they look at them? Um, by and large, I know you, you just mentioned some of them are not maybe they maybe see it as a challenge as opposed to an opportunity. But this seems like it just seems like you know if, if you're if you're running a business, even a utility that you'd like the idea of more customers buying more of your product. You'd think so. Uh, I've spent my career in utilities, Markham, and, uh, and I can say from firsthand experience that um, utilities are really good at optimizing within a clearly defined set of boundaries. Um, they're not as used to adjusting to a changing set of boundaries. Um, so give them an optimization problem and they will, they will do it, uh, but give them a moving target and it becomes harder. I think that um, utility infrastructure and the regulatory apparatus that really governs how that investment uh, into the infrastructure is managed 
um, is designed to be careful. It's designed to be uh, thoughtful and deliberate. Um, due process uh, reaches its apex when it comes into you know, the regulatory uh, realm. So utilities, if anything, are not designed to move fast. Um, and, uh, and, and the change that's coming is likely going to challenge utilities' ability to move quickly. I think that the most progressive utilities um, will see the opportunity that you just described. This is more sale. These are more kilowatt hours. Um, and, uh, and, and, and they should be excited because, as you know, some people put it, this is the biggest thing to happen to the Department of Energy since the founding of the Department of Energy. <laughs> this is going to be the biggest thing that happens to utilities since the beginning of utilities. Um, and uh, and um, we want the utilities to become winners in this. Um, hopefully, more of them do than not. But it's going to be it's going to require change. Uh, utilities were not built for this, uh, and so we're going to have to help them get ready for it. Well, it sounds like the observation that I make all the time about big oil companies, uh, because um, I, I spent five years in the industry, and I talked often in the U.S. and Canada. So I, I talked to. Uh, oil and gas engineers in Midland, Texas and Bakersfield, California and Calgary and all sorts of places. And the one thing I, I came away with, uh, one observation, is that uh, engineers in that industry, and I'm sure, actually, I, I kind of grew up in the utility business. My dad worked for Manitoba Hydro and so did I right after after uh, high school. Uh, so I, I have actually, I, I know engineers on both sides of the of the fence and they innovate amazingly well inside the box. Inside the box, they're brilliant. Outside the box, not so much. That's not their. That's yeah. their. The com that's not their comfort zone. So I, I, I would agree with uh, with your observation there. So let's talk about, let's talk about um, a, a topic that I saw in your report that really caught my eye, and that is the levelized cost of energy and the effect that the IRA might have on that. And you're saying there's a possibility of driving down the cost of wind and solar down around under $20 a, a megawatt hour. Uh, how, what's the mechanism there and, and why is that important? Yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's powerful. Um, there are a, a number of cleverly designed um, incentives um, that are aimed at achieving, you know, designated policy outcomes when it comes to, uh, um, uh, you know, incentivizing clean energy uh, development. Um, first, I think the, the most important mechanism that was put in place does not have to do with the number of cents, uh, you know, uh, uh, per KWH that goes into this. It actually goes into the time horizon. Um, the investment tax credits and the production tax credits in the United States have historically been kind of year, year by year uh, kind of projects. Um, you know, you get them for a year or two and then you don't know if you're gonna get them for the year or two after that. And so it feels a lot more like Kind of wildcat development, uh, uh, you know, talking about your oil and gas history, you know, it, it's a risky proposition because you don't know if those subsidies are going to be available, uh, you know, uh, uh, by the time your project comes online. Um, and so, so the first and most important thing I would argue that uh, that, that comes into play here is the ten-year time horizon. Uh, these tax credits are are in place; they are durable for a decade, and that gives you certainty. and uh, And those of us who spend time in the private sector know that. More than a subsidy, policy certainty uh, is 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 really uh, you know if you had to choose between the two, you choose policy certainty because at least you can now do the math and know that the answer is going to be true uh, at the end of the decade, not just at the beginning. In terms of the actual tax credit structures, um, I would say uh, you know there are some interesting things with the, with regard to you know the production tax credit, the investment tax credit, 
I think the most novel things are how you can layer these. Um, so there are tax credits, not just uh, you know, by how clean your energy resource is, but also by are you citing your, uh, uh, your project in a place that's a disadvantaged community? Um, are you uh, uh, doing it in a community that's been, uh, you know, that has displaced energy workers uh, from fossil fuel industries? Um, you know, these are the kinds of things that I think help the politics uh, of, 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 uh, of these mechanisms and also um, really can stack up and become powerful. You know, these, uh, these, these can, uh, you know, reduce the cost by, you know, not just, you know, 10% here, 10% there, but now we're looking at 20, maybe 30%. Um, and that, that really moves the needle. And there's a first mover advantage because there's only so many sites uh, that, you know, you can stack these benefits onto. And so it really accelerates the industry uh, in a way that, um, you know, you couldn't stimulate uh, if you just did a one size fits all. Now, I've been paying a fair amount of attention to hydrogen in the past year. And I noticed that your report talks about the levelized cost of energy for hydrogen going down at maybe as much as 67%, so two thirds. And, and, and that's hydrogen that's then, it's generated and then burned in a combined cycle gas turbine. And I wonder, because a lot of the shift uh, in the U.S. power sector over the last decade has been from coal to gas. And so there's all of these ga new gas plants that you know are maybe less than a decade old, they're 50-year infrastructure. And I've often wondered, uh, now that there are these, you know, these turbines that can be installed, uh, that can work on both gas and hydrogen, you can switch them over. If, if this isn't a really smart way to use low cost renewables, uh, you know, when the sun is shining and the, and the wind is blowing to generate hydrogen, store it underground, store it, and, and then burn it in these, you know, rejigged uh, gas power plants and, and burn hydrogen. Is this a, a major trend or is it a minor trend? Markham, you just described the project that ICF uh, uh, helped to make happen, which was the American Clean Energy Storage One project, uh, ACES One, um, where they're doing exactly what you described, um, using renewable energy, which we all know is intermittent and variable, uh, and using it to, uh, to electrolyze uh, green hydrogen. Um, but then hydrogen is, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a hard to store gas. The molecule is awfully small, um, and, and it takes up a lot of volume. And so um, they're citing this on a resource in Utah, that has a very favorable geology for uh, for underground cavern storage, uh, which the, your your listeners from the oil and gas uh, industry will recognize and then be familiar with. And so these salt dome caverns are really um, you know uh, a great place to store these kinds of uh, uh, molecules. And then uh, you turn around and you co-fire it. In this case, uh, the, the, the they're doing I think a thirty percent, seventy percent hydrogen uh, natural gas co-firing. Uh, but they have already committed. I think Mitsubishi is the, uh, the the project partner that's already committed to a development pathway towards a 100% hydrogen fireable uh, gas turbine. Uh, so uh, that's on the roadmap. And uh, and and we did the math. Uh, we helped uh, you know this project uh, uh, validate their 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 market assumptions. Um, this is the largest loan uh, that uh, the, the the loan program had offered uh, up to that point. I think they've since superseded it. Um, but it's a 500 million dollar loan guarantee. Uh, for what I think it's going to be, you know, we'll look back and say that was the beginning of of, of how this really started to unfold. So, yeah, you you've just described something that uh, that that we're involved in, and I think it's exciting. Well, interesting. Let's explore that just a little bit because I have th th there's a fascinating debate going on uh, where the you know, like I have you know in my in my social media circle and folks that I know who are you know the energy nerds uh, who are 
love uh, the electricity side. Uh, one elect they think figure they electrify pretty much everything, and a really poo poo hydrogen as a fuel. All sorts of efficiency issues and storage issues and and and, and so on. And in fact, I interviewed Paul Martin, who's a, a, a chemical engineer who's worked for hydrogen for the last thirty years, and says hydrogen is never going to catch on. It's just a you know it's a it's a chimera. Uh, but you're working with these folks who are putting their money where their mouth is. I mean, they're doing a project and you're working with Mitsubishi, who's got, you know, the, intimately familiar with the technology. Is hydrogen likely to, I don't know, get over the the obstacles in that are standing in the way of, of adoption and become viable? Can these kinds of projects, uh, do the economics work now and are they likely to improve over time? It's, it's hard to guarantee anything these days, um, but I can tell you, Markham, that, you know, 20 years ago, uh, 25 years ago, um, solar power looked uh, infeasible uh, from a you know, commercial point of view. Uh, it was not just out of the money. It was out of the money by orders of magnitude out of the money. Um, but technology, um, you know, unlocks opportunities. These things do not, you know, uh, move forward linearly. There are breakthroughs uh, that happen uh, and, and that can transform the viability of technologies. And so I think, you know, solar and wind are good examples of technologies that did not seem practical not long ago, uh, but today uh, are literally the cheapest ways to, 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 you know, get electricity at the margin. I think with hydrogen, the way, um, you know, that many folks think about it is that you wouldn't want to take, uh, you know, a, a, a renewable energy facility um, and then turn it into hydrogen for fun so that you could use it later because you end up having conversion losses. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a penalty to doing it that way. If you can use it directly at that moment as electricity, that is the best way to use it. Um, that said, um, we are cognizant that two things. One, the intermittent nature, as I mentioned before, uh, make hydrogen a good option uh, for, you know, taking excess renewables and uh, storing it to serve as baseload power, uh, you know, when the wind isn't shining and the, and, and the sun isn't, or the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. Um, the other thing that's, you know, really important is that there are hard to decarbonize industries out there, uh, steel, um, uh, uh, chemicals, um, uh, you know, uh, agriculture, uh, you know, there's things that are just going to be really difficult to, to electrify as, in, as industries. And so hydrogen can play an important role. Um, in terms of de helping to decarbonize those industries. Uh, so I, I, I'd say at this point, hydrogen is not a first choice for electricity production um, necessarily. It has an important role to play as a complement to renewables. And then for hard to decarbonize industries, it really could be part of the secret sauce. Now, you mentioned the, you know, wind and solar costs coming down over time. So, you know, Wright's law or learning curves have now entered our lexicon. We talk about them all the time and we use wind and solar to illustrate how costs come down. And and for anybody who hasn't heard, uh, isn't familiar with them, it's basically, you know, there's Jim Wright back in the 1930s, an aircraft engineer, and he noticed that every time you doubled production of some manufactured good, the labor costs fell by 20%. In the case of air, airplanes, it's since been expanded to other technologies. And generally, every time you double the cost of, or sorry, the production of that technology, now you can expect somewhere between 15 and 25% reduction in, in cost. So if, if electrolyzers, which are very high cost right now, I think green hydrogen is somewhere in the range of six to $8 a, a kilogram. If they're on the learning curve, then by 2030, which they might be 
producing hydrogen at $2 a kilogram. So when you're now, that's all great. If you're having this, you know, hypothetical theoretical conversation in a podcast or, or, you know, over a cup of coffee, but the folks that you're working on with the project in Utah, they're on the pointy end of the stick. It's their money at play. What do they think of that? The likelihood of the, of high, you know, electrolyzers coming down in cost and, and this becoming a, you know, economically really viable technology. You know, I think um, the the mechanism, like the loan guarantee program, the U.S. Department of Energy, I just mentioned for this ACES project, um, that's exactly what they're built to do, is to help buy down the risk of innovation. Um, as I mentioned, in that project, uh, they're going to be co-firing uh, that stored hydrogen uh, with 3070 uh, hydrogen and, and natural gas. Um, but they know, and that's where they're starting from, because that's what's available today. Uh, but they know that that's not where we need to end up. And they're already, you know, investing into uh, the roadmap towards 100% hydrogen fireable gas turbines. Um, electrolyzers, same thing. You know, the state of the art today, we know is not going to be what we're going to be using as the first choice a decade from now. Um, I just read that there's, you know, electrolyzers that have been shown to be highly efficient and productive and durable uh, for electrolyzing seawater without separation uh, uh, into, into, into pure water. Um, that would be game changing. Imagine offshore wind uh, being oh. able to take, you know, seawater directly uh, and, 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 and electrolyze it. Um, you know, at the end of the day, um, hydrogen is, you know, it, I mean, it stands for hydro water generation uh, because it is reverse combustion. Uh, you know, you're, 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 you're the opposite of, of, of turning, of, of putting something on fire is hydrogen electro electrolysis. And so, you know, if we can get that right, uh, if we can scale it, uh, uh, you know, um, not just scale it, but also drive down costs, um, it's going to be a powerful option. Um, I, you know, I think that right now we're at a point where the crisis is big enough from a climate perspective that we really can't afford to put all of our eggs in any one basket. Um, wind and solar are great today, um, and, and they're going to play a role, I think, for a long time to come. Fusion, uh, there's research, you know, you probably are familiar with the National Ignition Facility, they reached, uh, uh, they reached ignition. Um, you know, that's decades away from commercialization, but should that pan out, uh, that would be a huge game changer. So hydrogen, fusion, um, you know, renewable and wind will continue to march down their path of, of development as well. Uh, the next generation offshore wind turbines are going to be enormous because, uh, you know, uh, they have uh, a geographic, you know, a, a, a footprint that is different from what it is on land. And so these are all kind of the march of progress that we need. And I say, you know, all of the above is better than let's uh, pick winners and losers right now. Let's talk about some of the strategies for the utilities that you, um, that you recommend in your report. And a couple of them kind of caught me by surprise, I have to tell you. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is communication with your customers. And one a, 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 a consistent theme of our energy journalism is the need for narratives, because the average person, when it comes to electricity, just wants to flick the switch and have stuff work at a reasonable cost and, you know, and have it there all the time. Every time they flick the switch, the light comes on. And so what they need to think about in terms of their understanding of all the stuff that we're talking about needs to be fairly simple and, you know, a narrative uh, buttressed by storytelling. And it sounds like that's the direction you think utilities need to go in so that they get public buy-in, which then supports their activities and the policy options that they're working the policy framework within which they work 
is that am I on the right track here? What's your take? Yeah, Markham, you point out uh, an important thing here, which is that at least in the United States, I don't know how it is in Canada, um, you know, hating on your utility can sometimes be sort of a national pastime. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, they're big targets. They're easy to, to, to criticize. Um, that said, if utilities are going to be in the driver's seat for a clean energy future, um, they need to become a lot better at engaging with their communities, communicating with their customers, uh, being part of the solution rather than being, uh, you know, seen as part of the problem. Um, if we're going to electrify, you know, not everything, but a lot of things, um, utilities are going to be the ones whose infrastructure we ride upon and uh, that become, you know, the hub to all these spokes. Um, we know today that, you know, utilities are heavily regulated industries with regulated monopolies. Um, they really aren't built and ever, haven't ever really needed to be good at that storytelling that you mentioned. Um, and so that's the reason that we put this into our report and highlighted it as a need is that we know that utilities are not necessarily, you know, starting ahead of the curve. They're, they're, they're closer to score one than not. Um, and that's a skill set that takes time to develop. I'll give you a quick example. I recently installed a heat pump of my own. We have an electric vehicle that we recently received. And I called into my utility and said, hey, we're on a net metering tariff because we got the rooftop solar installed. Um, I would like to go on time of day pricing because I've got this electric vehicle that I charge at night. But we have this heat pump uh, that, uh, you know, replaces uh, a gas fired furnace, but it's using more electricity and it's pushed up into inclining block rates. So is there a way I can kind of solve for these three at the same time? And the customer service rep had, I won't say zero idea what I was talking about, uh, but it was a math, you know, she was used to doing arithmetic and I was asking her to do algebra. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I'm not faulting my utility because, you know, I'm an early adopter and I recognize that I'm asking questions that they're not used to answering yet. Uh, but there's going to be more and more folks who are going to say, wait a second, my bill is three times what it used to be. And they'll forget that they're not paying for gasoline at the pump anymore. Uh, but we know from psychology that we value losses more than we value gains. Um, there are going to be people who say, wait a second, how come I'm paying more for the marginal cost of my electricity now than I did at the beginning? Well, inclining block rates probably aren't the right tool anymore. They were great for conservation back in the day, but in an era of electrification, we might have to revisit that. Um, and so these are the kinds of things that utilities are going to have to get ready for, uh, because these are the conversations that we're all going to be having more and more. Another recommendation is that you, the utilities talk to their uh, state regulators and uh, their state energy departments. Now, that I'll tell you why that surprised me is because I see utilities as incumbents and big incumbents. And generally, they have a lot of influence with regulators. And they spend a lot of time doing government relations work with, with the regulator, with the uh, politicians, with you know, the policymakers. And since they're already doing that, at least I assume that they're doing that south of the border, because I know they sure do it north of the border, uh, how might that change in the this new paradigm we're talking about? Yeah, great question. Um, you're right. Utilities, I, I, I like to say that if you boil the utility, a regulated utility, down to its essential oils, uh, you would end up not with uh, steel and wires and electrons. You would actually end up with a relationship, that with its regulator. Um, so you're right. Utilities are very used to being in the room with their regulators and having regular conversations with them. Um, the The fact of the matter, though, is is that utility rate cases are generally incremental. It's you know last time plus this you know uh, this percent, um, and that's the way it's always been. And people are pretty used to doing it that way. Um, going forward, um, 
not only is are, are the increments going to become bigger probably uh, because electrification is going to be happening at scale and at speed but also utilities are going to start coming in and saying we want to control customer assets to become part of our distributed grid edge solutions so we want flexible load management will you approve that regulator and the regulators if they're not prepared for that conversation if they're not you know engaged in in the lead up to that they're probably going to say no because when those customers have an asset that's controlled by the utility and something happens that they didn't expect or they didn't like, uh, who do they call? Nah, they might call the utility, but they're probably also going to call their elected officials. And those elected officials, they want a throat to choke and they're probably going to go to the, their peers at the utility commission. And so the utility commissions know that you know, this is coming down their way. And if, uh, if they're not ready for it, they're probably not going to be uh, you know, getting out ahead of the curve. Um, you know, utilities are generally seen as somewhat conservative. We talked about they're not built for rapid change. Utility regulators are even more so. Um, you know, their, their job is to uh, not just to keep the lights on, uh, but to make sure no one complains about it, you know, when, when anything changes. And so utility regulators um, are going to have to innovate uh, in, in, in their domain every bit as much as utilities are going to have to innovate in their infrastructure domains. So uh, these things have to go hand in hand for sectors, you know, industries, associations, and people that, um, you know, aren't necessarily used to doing it that way. Yeah, and in today's in, in a political environment, that's really important. I remember 10, 15 years ago when uh, British Columbia was switching over to smart meters. I mean, this should be a, a no-brainer, right? It's it's, and it was it provoked a huge backlash. No, it didn't. I don't know that it, it didn't stop it. May have slowed down the process. But, you know, I remember, you know, being around in our community and seeing lawn signs all over the place, uh, you know, claiming, you know, arguing to stop the adoption of smart meters and making all sorts of claims, uh, you know, ridiculous things about what it will do or allow the utility to do. It was very much part of a conspiracy theory, which today is that culture is even more entrenched in a problem than it was. Uh, so we're not having we're not having this sterile rational conversation all of this process takes place in a political environment a cultural environment that's very volatile and very it's difficult to communicate these kinds kinds of ideas but if you don't you you raise the issue well then what happens when the utility wants to do demand response demand management and you have to have the the consumers on board for that they have to agree to let you you know, lower their AC or or their heat or whatever it is, uh, and they may not if they're not communicated with it, if they don't understand. Yeah, Markham, you bring up a great point. Um, you know, we talked earlier about communication with customers. Um, that you have to couple with the idea that if we do it right, uh, if we do it ideally, um, we're going to be deploying all these new assets, clean energy assets out onto the grid, uh, battery storage, electric vehicles, heat pumps, rooftop solar, et cetera. Those assets, if we do it wrong, are all going to be one-off. They're going to be analog. Uh, They're not going to be able to send and receive price signals. And now we're going to have to build more grid. As opposed to if we network these devices, if they are communicating, customers are engaging or at least setting their preferences on how these devices interact, um, then we not only have to build less, more grid, but we can actually use more of the grid we already have. And that would be a tremendous win. It would be a paradigm shift. It's not going to be easy. It's going to require uh, engagement with customers, engagement with regulators, as well as engagement with assets. Um, but the, the the upside is tremendous. Uh, you know, we'll save a lot of money, we'll reduce a lot of carbon, and we're going to do it a lot a lot faster than we would otherwise. Now, 
you mentioned in your report distributed energy resources and the difficulty that utilities might have wrapping their head around how that changes. And I've I've seen discussions of the future of the utility business model, which is out, you know, is, is very often almost always a vertically integrated monopoly or very close to it. And talk, you know, the, the that model is going to be flattened. And the utility to, to greater or lesser extent becomes like a platform now where energy is, you know, in the form of electricity is maybe hydrogen, who knows, uh, but is it's traded back and forth. Services are traded on that platform. And that's the way that the utility will generate a lot of its revenue. And that seems like such a radical change in the, uh, in the business. And, uh, the role that distributed energy will play in that. So we're talking rooftop solar and uh, maybe in commercial areas, I suppose there might be some wind, but, but mainly we're talking about solar here. Can you give us your take on, on DERs and how that's going to affect the utility business model? Wow, there's a lot to unpack in that one, Markham. I think that what you described is a possible future um, uh, where utilities become distribution system operators, much like we have regional transmission operators and organizations. Um, that's one possible future. Um, and that would be one that would be highly market-driven, highly transactional, um, but also I would say it argue, arguably requires the greatest investment in uh, you know, network infrastructure, uh, consumer engagement, um, and, uh, and, and interaction. Um, I'm not sure, um, you know, uh, I think in some places they'll get there. In some places uh, they may find that it's not the right solution for them. I don't think we're gonna see one size fits all in that regard. Um, but that said, the, you know, the distribution system is going to be different uh, tomorrow than it is today. I think we can agree on that. Um, there will be places where the utility is gonna be more in the driver's seat, uh, where utilities are gonna have, um, you know, uh, relationships with customers where they control the assets. In other places, customers are going to retain control over their assets. Uh, you know, privacy policies are going to be different from, you know, state to state, from region to region. Um, and not every place in the United States has a regional transmission organization. Uh, and so you don't always have a wholesale market that you can aggregate resources at the distribution level and, and, and sell upstream. So, uh, so I think we're going to see a diversity. That's part of the great federal experiment here in the United States. Uh, and I, I think we're going to play, see that play out uh, sort of in the electricity sector as well. Yeah, I've often wondered how that's going to work in Canada because the, you know, very often the, the utilities, as I mentioned earlier, are uh, crown owned by the government, the crown corporations. They're very much, you know, vertically integrated and 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 hold a monopoly within the within the province. And they generally, you know, have a very close relationship with the regular regulator and a very close relationship with the the government officials and the policymakers. So that means that, you know, they ex exert a lot of influence. So we'll, we'll see what happens north of the border, because it looks like the uh, south of the border is going to be a bit of a Petri dish uh, for, you know, business models, utility business models. And we'll see how this 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 plays out. Well, let's not forget what? penicillin came from a Petri dish, and that was a good thing. Uh, and I want, also want to give a shout out to um, consumer-owned utilities. Um, you know, there is a lot of utilities, the majority of utilities, uh, the, the vast majority of utilities actually are consumer-owned. They're small, they're rural, they're electric cooperatives or municipal organizations. They have different incentive structures. They have different governance structures. Uh, they're going to be, you know, deploying their their own solutions for their own uh, particular situations. And so uh, that 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 landscape of innovation is even more broad than what we've talked about, which has primarily been focused so far on investor-owned utilities. 
I want to end our conversation, Michael. This has been absolutely fascinating. And it's such a complex topic that I I know I, I keep coming back to it over and over again because there are so many layers to this onion. And so I really appreciate your insights. But let's kind of pull back to the 35,000 foot level here and looking at the utility landscape in the United States, the role of new technologies. And this is something that happens almost, it's almost invisible to, to the consumer. You know, like smart meters would be example of one that is visible. But a lot of this stuff, you know, like I get in my inbox all the time as a journalist, I'm on the mailing list for many, many organizations and businesses that are always coming up with innovations. And I'm astonished at the, uh, from the U.S., the number of organizations that talk about, uh, oh, grid technologies that can allow, you know, 50% more or double the amount of electricity in the same transmission system or, you know, AI driven ways of managing demand uh, and microgrids. I mean, there's so much technology, you know, we've talked about the regulatory environment. We've talked about the IRA and funding and, and, and policy and, and all of those sorts of things, but the impact of this wave tsunami, I'm sorry, it's not a wave, it's a tsunami of new technology that affects the electricity system. Could you maybe just, I, I'm curious about your view of that. You know, Markham, I spent over a decade in the clean tech innovation space, uh, trying to disrupt the heck out of utilities with software, with hardware, with algorithms, um, with, with, with the infrastructure. And, and, and this is my take on it. Um, I I'll get the quote wrong, but there's a quote out there somewhere along the lines of any technology sufficiently, you know, uh, successful is basically magic, right? Um, and uh, and and that's going to hold true, I think, for the utility sector is um, customers at the end of the day, like you said earlier, just want to flip the switch and have their lights come on. And if we do it right, I think success will be measured by customers not noticing that things are different. Um, it's very difficult to brand an electron. Um, it's very difficult to, to differentiate yourself in, in, you know, in, in this commodity. Um, I think that things will, you know, it's going to be like that duck, uh, you know, paddling furiously beneath the surface of the water, but from all outward appearances, everything is just gliding right along. Um, reliability, let's not forget how important reliability is. Um, you know, generally reliability has been trending in the wrong direction here in the United States. I'm not sure how it is in Canada, um, but, you know, we can do better, um, both in terms of frequency and duration. Um, if we do it right, the grid will become cleaner. The grid will become a backbone for our decarbonization of our infrastructure and our economy. And if we do it right, no one's going to notice. Uh, the lights will stay on. Um, you know, the, 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 the bills will be manageable um, and, uh, and we'll all be better off. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm an early adopter. I really don't want to spend time responding to text messages to dial my thermostat up or down. I really don't want to deal with the hassle. I just plug my EV in and, you know, have it be ready when I need it, as opposed to try to have to set the charging time and whatnot. We use electricity in the first place, let's not forget, in order to spend more time doing the things we really care about. Rather than doing our laundry on a washboard, we throw it in the machine so that we can sit down with our kids and have dinner together. Uh, you know, rather than, uh, you know, I mean, electricity is the ultimate convenience. It's transformed modern life in ways that let us spend more time doing the things we care about. So let's keep it that way is my argument. 
Right. All of that is is fair enough, and I think they're interesting insights. But are we facing a tsunami of new technology that will enable all of that? How profound is the technological revolution facing the utility business? Yeah, yeah. I'll put it this way, Markham. Uh, I worked with a startup that um, was developing digital twins for the edge of the grid. Um, this is what we do for jet engines and for you know highly complex machines. We build digital twins so that you can understand what's going on and 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 optimize uh, within that that box. Um, we were deploying this at utilities where what we were replacing were literally binders with paper and pencil drawings. Right, so they had these static diagrams. Lord knows how old they were, and we certainly know you know that they were out of date. Um, but that's what we were going to. We were leapfrogging the digitization of the grid edge was going from paper and pencil to digital twins that were dynamic. This is what's going to happen. But the customer, if we do it right, doesn't notice. Right. Utility notices. Are the utilities in a place where they're open to that technology? And do they have the skill sets and, and the whatever else is required to accommodate and absorb and deploy all of that technology uh, in an efficient fashion. This is where I get really excited, Markham, because what I see, you mentioned tsunami, technology tsunami. I also, I think most people recognize there's a silver tsunami coming in the utility workforce. Um, there's an generation of folks who got us here uh, and, and, and did really great work to keep the lights on uh, you know, for, our, uh, for our times. Um, who are going to be retiring and exiting the workforce. And uh, we have an opportunity to bring in and usher in uh, a new generation of folks who are, um, they're, they're digital natives, um, they are technology savvy, they're comfortable with change, uh, and they're eager to make their mark. So I think the, you know, my, my, what I would urge for anyone, I think probably some of your listeners are interested, how do I get involved in the clean energy revolution? Um, utilities, which maybe historically haven't been, you know, the most, uh, you know, the, the first choice for a lot of people to say, oh, this is where I want to like, you know, make my mark. It's a tremendous opportunity. Get in now uh, because uh, the path forward is going to be, you know, just rich with ways to make a difference uh, on the technology front, on the consumer engagement front, on the regulatory relations front, uh, you name it, there's important work to do and those openings are coming up. Yeah, I, I occasionally speak to colleges and universities and, you know, kids that are in studying for some aspect of renewable energy, clean energy, and, and you know, they worry a little bit. Now, up in Canada, we're not seeing the dynamic change that you are seeing in the United States yet. Uh, so, but I, they, they ask questions, you know, am I going to be able to get a, a, a job? Am I going to get a decent job? And, and so I very often ask uh, when I'm having these kinds of conversations with interviewees, you know, what's the prospect in your particular sector for these kids who are now in a technical college or maybe they're in university studying for engineering? And invariably, the answer comes back, oh, my God, we can't. A, human capital, people are the biggest resource we have to manage this. This is the thing that we have to get right uh, so that, and we can't get enough of them. And if yeah. you've got it, if you've got a mark them, you've got a pipeline to some, send them our way. You know, I mean, the, 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 uh, the intellectual capital here is, is really critical. And it sounds like you would agree about the, from the utility perspective in the U S not just intellectual capital in terms of, we need a bunch of PhDs who can go right. into, you know, the, the, the build digital twins, 
Um, but we also just need trades. We need folks who know how to like do wiring, folks who need, you know, who know how to like install things um, and maintain things. Um, you know, this is going to be uh, a tremendous across the board opportunity uh, for folks, you know, who are interested in entering at every level. Um, you know, if, 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 uh, if, if you had to choose, you know, sort of the, the least risk way of getting involved in the clean energy revolution in a meaningful manner, uh, I, I'd say, you know, electrician. I mean, you know, we're going to have to plug all these things in. We're going to have to wire all these things together. The number of like electrical panels in houses that are going to need to be upgraded in order to accommodate EVs and heat pumps and rooftop solar is staggering. It's staggering, absolutely overwhelming for the current electrical work, you know, electrical worker workforce. That's hilarious because just uh, uh, last year we we installed a, a heat pump in our house and we had to upgrade our panel. So there's like four thousand dollars and another fifteen hundred bucks for the utility to come in and and uh, uh, improve our the supply to you know to our house and then the panel and and all of that. And uh, so I got a bit of a firsthand view of what the electrician thinks of all of that and the company doing it yeah. and how, and it's not a, it's not, it's, it wasn't an overwhelming process, but it wasn't a simple one either. And right. So, you definitely do not want to DIY that one. <laughs> if uh, someday I'll tell you about my experiences with uh, electricity. Uh, well, just a little anecdote here. So back in the 1970s, I was working at a converter station, take a hydro, you, it goes in AC comes out DC, so you can ship it long distances. And these were old mercury arc valves. And I got called out, I was an electrician technicians helper, if you can believe it. I was like 18 years old. And I got called out at 2am. And so here I am poking around with a, uh, a nut driver trying to take off a hose and I shorted out a capacitor and I got a shock that would have killed most people. I don't know how I survived. I will never forget the feeling of all of that electricity going up my right arm and into my body. And it picked me up and threw me back against a wall. My hair was standing on end. And ever since then, I have had a very healthy relationship with electricity, meaning beyond flicking a switch, I don't go there. So I wasn't going to you know, do it, DIY my uh, electrical panel. That was not on the table. So nothing like learning the hard way, right, Markham? Oh, yes, indeed. Well, look, Michael, this has been fascinating. Thank you very much for this. Really appreciate uh, your insights. Well, you ask great questions, Markham. I know that your your, your audience and your listenership uh, benefits from uh, the answers that, uh, that you help to bring forward. So keep up the great work. Look forward to helping out and talking about anything that we can to enlighten the, the folks out there. We'll look forward to future conversations. Mm -hmm.